welcome to the Sons of Thunder, 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 Thunder. Um, That's taking me back, man. That is taking me back to your old DJ days. My old DJ days. DJ right? Mamo D. Oh, oh yeah. You nice. Thank you for uh, thank you for that. I of course don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, of course. Proceed, proceed. I didn't used to use a uh, free program with uh, that came with our computer to make super awesome DJ beats in 2001. And songs about world domination, nation, nation, nation. Man, you're taking people down a, a rabbit trail of inside <laughs> jokes they are never going to understand. Uh, this is the Sons of Thunder, and I've already got several people watching. Uh, if you're listening later on via the podcast, or if you're watching this video on Facebook or YouTube later on, let me just encourage you to, if you're watching on Facebook, like this video and uh, follow what we're doing with the Think Institute. If you're watching on YouTube, give it a like, subscribe to the channel, pass this around on Twitter. Leave, leave a crazy comment uh, leave a on YouTube because <laughs> you guys are insane. Dude, seriously, if you're watching on YouTube, what is wrong? To quote R.C. Sproul, what is wrong with you people? Exactly. Because uh, you're all, all of you. I don't even think we need to qualify. <laughs> you're all insane. Yeah. Uh, every every time, every time a video goes up there, it's like the crazies come out and um, and feel the need to just proffer their conspiratorial uh, just lunacy. <laughs> yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, thanks for listening. I'm Joel Sedicase. And I'm Parker Sedicase. And this is the Sons of Thunder, the show where uh, mostly it's us bloviating about <laughs> uh, philosophical topics. But every now and then we do get a real scholar to come on and uh, and talk about something that's uh, really fascinating. And we've got that today. So I want you to just imagine a scenario. Okay. Imagine that you are the father of or mother of a junior high student who comes home and and says, hey, dad, you know, um, or, or you ask him, hey, you know, what'd you learn in school today? Oh, not much. You know, uh, our history teacher just taught us about Galileo and how uh, the church persecuted Galileo for um, for his scientific theories. And, uh, and, you know, dad, isn't it crazy? Isn't it crazy how the church has been such an enemy of science, hmm. you know, over the years? And, and, you know, dad, uh, isn't that, you know, that's pretty bad about the church, huh? And then the kid goes to his room, um, to after go, uh, a thorough spanking and <laughs> no dessert. That's right. Uh, we don't ask those kind of questions in this house. Son. <laughs> um, listen, what do you say? What do you say when your son brings that to you, when your daughter brings that to you and, uh, and says, you know, why is the church such an enemy of science? Yeah. Well, I, I know what I would say. I would say, you know, the world's in his hands and I'd give them a, a Christian account of, of scientific laws and its antithetical uh, competitors. That's you know, what I would do. It's funny you mentioned that, Park. Uh, what a coincidence because um, you're, there's someone who's actually done exactly that. Wow. It, yeah. His name is Dr. Christopher Lee Bolt and he's a husband, father, pastor, professor, and author of a book that is coincidentally titled The World in His Hands, A Christian Account of Scientific Law and its, antith and its Antithetical Competitors. So without any further um, bloviating on our parts, I'm going to see how many times I can work that yeah, word in. that's a good word. Let's, let's go ahead and welcome Dr. Chris Bolt to the show. Dr. Bolt, welcome to the Sons of Thunder. Thank you so much for having me. 
Well, it is it is our pleasure, man. Um, Parker suggested that we we have you on. This is like over a month ago. Um, actually, before he even I think suggested that he's like, hey, you got to listen to this interview with uh, Eli Ayala, who we've had on the, the uh, on our podcast before as well. He's like, you got to listen to this interview that Eli did with uh, Chris Bolt or CL Bolt. Um, talking about presupp presuppositional apologetics. So, um, you know, and that sort of started this chain reaction of talking about getting you on the show. And uh, so, you know, I've been reading your book, and I I must confess, man, I did I did not finish it. I I'm about forty eight percent of the way through, which um, you know, is probably more like sixty percent of the way through because mm, I think. Most of your book is probably endnotes. Uh, <laughs> you've got some of the most extensive endnotes. And I know this is a doctoral footnotes. Uh, no, I think they're not. Are they footnotes or endnotes? Chris, can you help us with this? Are well, they footnotes? Endnotes end are the devil. So they are footnotes. That's right. That's right. Yeah. It's in okay. the foot of the paper. Okay. Well, on my Kindle version, they, they show up at the end of the. Ah, uh, uh, man. You don't get to see yeah. the. Uh, you don't get to see a full page of footnotes. <laughs> that's too that's that's theological downgrade right there <laughs> that is hey you know it's funny you mentioned theological downgrade because i know you are a graduate should i go there you, i know you're a graduate of southern seminary and uh, i know you've been following what's been going on there i don't know if we'll get to it today but um there's a lot going on in the world of of uh southern baptist are, chris are you sorry should i call you chris or or dr hey, bolt is that okay? okay yes that's fine thank you um so, Chris, are you a, are you a Southern Baptist? I am. Okay, yes. and and you're you are a Southern Baptist pastor, correct? I am. Yes. And um, what are, what is your? Are you the lead pastor? I know Southern Baptist; they've got pastors. Yes. So, and deacons my and title is uh, my title is pastor teacher, and okay. we do have a plurality of elders, but we are congregational ruled. Huh. Like good Southern Baptists, right? Exactly. Yes. <laughs> But you have pastors and elders. Okay, so so you're a graduate of Southern. You are a pastor, and you are in is Western Middle Tennessee, correct? Did I get that right? Southern Middle Tennessee. That's right. That's right. Southern Middle Tennessee. Okay. And I don't know it any better than you do. I'm, you know, I feel new here too. So, but that's how they say it. <laughs> well, where where are you from originally? Originally, I am from Lynchburg, Virginia. Oh, okay, Virginia. I hear and, it. I hear it in the accent there. Well. Who knows what my accent sounds like now? Uh, of course, I was in Louisville for four years, and then uh, down in the South for a while now. We got the Louisville pronunciation down. You know, it's, Wait, not, exactly. it's not Louisville. Uh, this is also like a that. matter of theological conservatism. <laughs> That's right, <laughs> Louisville. Did, did you say you were in Louisville, but or Louisville? Louisville. Come on, dude. But <laughs> look, I'm a Chicagoan. I say Louisville. Um, <laughs> Are you uh, are you saying that you were in in Louisville, but now you're in the South? In other words, implying Louisville is not the South. Is that? Yeah, I, Louisville is the strangest place. Uh, I don't think that they're North, South, East, or West. They don't really know what they are. Huh. So. Well, maybe that's part of the problem. <laughs> that could be. That yeah. could be. For, for us, anything south of. Uh, of Chicago is the South. <laughs> right. Any, anything, anything South of, of, uh, I 80, which, mm -hmm. which go, which is about, let's say 15 miles South of Chicago. Right. We just sort of lump that all together. Well, south see where, where I am now, they actually consider Lynchburg, Virginia, the North. Wow. Oh man. So, 
You know, Southerners, Southerners are, are in, very interesting people. I love them. I, I love Southerners. Um, but they're, they're, they're a different, it's just oh, this a is, different world down there. The culture here is distinctly different from where I am from. Uh, but I grew up with a lot of New Englanders as well. So that may have okay. something to do with it. Well, then I've only got one question for you. How did you become a Chris Cornell fan? How did that happen? <laughs> I don't. I don't know if I'm comfortable with that being public knowledge or not. <laughs> hey, you're the one who posted Chris Cornell lyrics on I Twitter, did. and I, I did, did my it was, homework. It was late at night, and that was probably yeah. illustrated. week, yeah. But, uh, but I do love the lyrics to that. I, I thought those were brilliant lyrics. Uh, I, okay, so now, but now, I, I am a big fan of, of of grunge music. Yes. So, do you have an opinion on this? Do you would would you say that Chris Cornell? is um objectively uh he his james bond theme for casino royale is that the the objectively best james bond theme or do you have no opinion on that yeah see i'm not a james bond fan or person so i know almost nothing of that world but i do like that song for sure okay well that that tells you something even non-james bond fans like it so that (laughs) i'm gonna i'm gonna take that as a a win um so, so you are a husband and father, correct? Uh, how many yes. kids do you have, Chris? Four. Four kids. Good for you, man. That's awesome. So, of the of the three of us on this um, on this uh, episode on this recording right now, two of us are real men and have four yeah. kids. Yeah. And then one of us is <laughs> one of Just us is waiting on the Lord's provision and uh, taking his time to pray through decisions. Yeah, <laughs> I good. understand. That's, that's good and spiritual. So, um, you're a you're a pastor. You're a, a husband. You're a father, and you are the author of of uh, the world in his hands. But um, you also started a ministry or an organization called Choosing Hats. You co-founded right. that. Um, that's right. And you th- that was about 10, 11 years ago now. Um, I understand that you're not still at the helm of that, but what is Choosing Hats and um, how did that how did that come about? So Choosing Hats uh, comes from a quote from Cornelius Van Til, who is considered the father of modern presuppositional apologetic methodology. And uh, he said that one cannot simply choose epistemologies as one chooses hats. And so we had floated the idea of several different names for a blog, and we thought, how about choosing hats? And it stuck. Uh, Brian Knapp and I uh, founded that website, and basically we had bumped into one another online and started talking to one another, and uh, we were thinking right along the same lines on everything. Uh, It's like we could complete one another's sentences, even though we had never met. And so we just said, why not start a website? And our idea was to make presuppositional apologetics accessible uh, just to to virtually anyone, because there's often that complaint out there that a lot of presuppositional literature is difficult to understand. It's not accessible. So what we really wanted to do was to lose the terminology, uh, to lose some of the academic uh, erudition and bring it down to just regular words for regular people. And I think we were successful uh, in our goal. We had a really good run. Uh, when I began to pastor, uh, that's when I, I I did make kind of a set decision to not write as much, uh, to, to focus in on that ministry more. Um, and so the site's still up, everything's still there as of right now, but it's 
pretty much defunct. I might go and write something once in a while. Uh, but that's kind of the story of choosing hats, and it was a good run. Uh, Brian is trying to start some new things up. He's got a website now, uh, Revelationary Apologetics, uh, that he's trying to get going. And uh, and recently here, I've been invited onto more podcasts and whatnot. So that seems to be the new thing. Uh, it's interesting to see how the landscape has kind of changed in in the past ten years. So. Hmm. Yeah, I actually, I discovered Choosing Hats because I, I posted that quote from Van Til. Uh, I think it's from Survey of Christian Epistemology. And someone, whoever was on Twitter uh, under that handle at the time, liked it and was, uh, I don't know, sent some kind of funny emoji. It's like, oh man, Choosing Hats, that's awesome. And then I went to the website and almost lost my mind just seeing all this, all these resources. And I was like, I'm not alone. You know, I'm I'm here in Chicago. So, um, you know, outside of the Westminster world and um, was me and Joel were the only preceptors around that I knew of. And so then seeing all these resources on choosing hats was insane. It was awesome. And, and you are committed to the presuppositional method. Um, I know that. And I, um, I just want to recommend anyone listening or watching, um, after you're done watching this and after you've subscribed and liked and shared it around, uh, go ahead and seriously watch Chris's interview on Revealed Apologetics with Eli Ayala. It's very, very good. And um, he really lays out why pre presuppositionalism makes good sense, uh, why he, why that's his methodology, and, um, and, and, you know, his sort of unique way of approaching it. Um, so how did you come to write this book, The World in His Hands? What, what was the, uh, this was your doctoral thesis, but what, what led you in this direction? Yes. So early on, um, I was getting into presuppositional apologetics and trying to comprehend what they were or what it is. And, uh, and one of the things that kept coming up in the literature was, you know, this needs a lot of work. This needs some development. We need to do things to move this method forward. And another thing that came up quite often was the complaint that there were not a lot of presuppositionalists who had gone through the academy and who carried uh, the academic uh, credentials and whatnot. Uh, that's not the case now, I don't believe, by any stretch of the imagination, actually. Um, but I, I determined to do both of those things, to advance the method insofar as I could, and also to uh, to try to pursue something in higher education uh, to better understand the method and to apply it and use it and write about it and whatnot. So one of the things that became fascinating to me uh, was Hume's problem of induction. This refers to the Scottish skeptic David Hume. He was a radical empiricist. And uh, the way I read Hume, his radical empiricism actually led him to skepticism. And so I view that as a failed epistemology of sorts that's illustrated in uh, David Hume. And so David Hume uh, was a figure I encountered in my undergraduate studies uh, at a, it, it wasn't secular technically, but it was a secular uh, undergraduate school. Um, and I'm not talking about Liberty University, just so that, I, so that you don't get hate mail on that. Good clarification. Um, but anyway, um, yeah. Uh, I, we learned about David Hume. We learned about Hume's problem of induction. And so I determined to begin to study that problem. Uh, and of course, I'd heard it referenced in some of Bonson's material and whatnot, Greg Bonson's material. 
who was the protege of, of Antill, of course. And so uh, after taking really what I would refer to as a short break while I was in seminary uh, studying for uh, the ministry and the pastorate, um, I kind of let all of that set to the side. But then I returned to that question in, in my doctoral studies and uh, began to look more into these issues of the intersection of uh, in the broadest terms, religion and science, right? But uh, perhaps in the narrowest terms, uh, how do we respond to this problem of induction? Uh, utilizing what I know from the presuppositional methodology, uh, but also drawing on, because, and a lot of people don't realize this, but where I went to school, Southern Seminary, uh, was not committed to the presuppositional methodology, at least in its philosophy and apologetics departments. Hmm. Um, and there are many in the theology department who follow that course more so. Um, so this this book really comes out more as a, a cumulative uh, approach. I'm, I'm drawing from different uh, traditions of apologetics, but I, I think there's a lot to be said for that anyway, even from a presuppositional standpoint. Yeah, yeah, I love uh, in the introduction you say, um, thus this book is best viewed as a work of constructive philosophical theology with possible apologetic applications. And I love that because you're going downstream of the apologetics. Um, and so it is a work of apologetics. You can apply this to apologetics, but it's it's uh, more foundational. And it's it's a work of philosophical theology, which is awesome. And uh, I was looking looking over, I think I found your dissertation online as well and uh was was wellum your your first reader or i, I saw him on the on the um, board so steve, steve wellum was on my defense committee okay and uh and james anderson had reformed theological yeah, I saw that. he was my external reader uh what a lineup yeah it's fantastic so uh getting into the to the book a little bit um this is this is awesome, man. I love this. I can't say enough good things. I haven't finished it either, like Joel, but uh, I'm going to be never working. I've read it, so that's, <laughs> that's good. <laughs> it's um, really good. It's good. Yeah, we, well, what we've read so far. I'll yeah, have to check so it out. We're going to be we're going to be <laughs> making you quote stuff here. Um, so providence. This is another reason that, that I love it uh, as a work of philosophical theology because you are using actual reformed theology in order to undergird science and uh, the philosophy of science, which is huge. Usually hear from a lot of Christian apologists that, you know, we have to have philosophy undergirding our theology. And I'm not sure what you'd say about this, but it's, it's reciprocal. You know, we need, we need to have both, but here um, you're taking this, this classical doctrine of providence and then you're analyzing it. And I love that. I, I was hoping you could um, give us a distinction. So when you anal in your analysis of providence, you talk about governance, and concurrence, and um, the, what's the third one here? Uh, preservation. That's right. Um, can you explain to us how you're using those three, and maybe maybe a quick definition? Yes. Let's see what I can remember. Um, so, in in traditional reformed thought, uh, well, let, let's back up a moment. Um, just in general, there are kind of three different ways we could approach this topic of God's. Um, relation to the world regarding uh, his providence and whatnot. And I use that word relation very loosely because that's a rabbit trail I don't want to go down. But 
Um, I break this into three different approaches. There is a non-concurrent theistic preservation and government. And what I'm talking about there uh, is simply, if you can think of an emphasis on the theistic element of providence apart from the cosmological element. In other words, we're thinking here of God as the first cause of everything, the primary cause of everything, with a denial of secondary causation or secondary causality. So in a view like this, if you were to drop a pen, uh, there is, at least what I argue, is that there's really no scientific or causal explanation for this apart from God caused this to happen. God caused the pen to be suspended by the fingers in the air. God caused the pen to fall through the air. God caused the fingers to open without regard to I opened my fingers and gravity right affected this pen in such a way that it fell. Um, this was a view that was, it seems to have been held by Jonathan Edwards. Uh, and I go into his view and interact with him, which that was a rather daunting task, by the way. Uh, yeah. When I discovered the view that he held and yeah. tr trying to sift through his works, I'm not that familiar with Edwards, trying to sift through his works to find where he talks about this and to interact with him. On the front end of this work, I was thinking, what have I gotten myself into? <laughs> um, but that's one view. Another view is the non-concurrent cosmological preservation in government. That's simply uh, a deistic or a naturalistic uh, understanding of, of how the world functions, how the world works. And I use kind of a simple cosmological argument that I pull, I believe, from Hugh McCann uh, to rebut that view. Uh, just to push back against that. Uh, by the way, on the first view, um, you're looking at Hodge, who is at Princeton, responding to Edwards on many of, of uh, his issues, I believe, mm -hmm. on that. Mm -hmm. So the view I take is the concurrent theistic cosmological preservation and government. This means that God uh, is at work in this task of preserving and governing the world, but that doesn't leave out uh, secondary causation. That doesn't leave out the cosmological element here. And so you'll have uh, one event, but you'll have two agents, as it were. So this then takes us into the different um, reformed views and understandings uh, of that. Um, you've, you've got three uh, parts usually understood in providence. There's concurrence, which is God working with the creation, uh, as I've just explained. You've got preservation, which is God uh, holding all things in existence, okay, and then and carrying them along. And then there's government, where they are governed toward their ends. I actually side with Francis Turretin and uh, Oliver Crisp uh, in the book in, in taking concurrence to be a, a function of God's preservation and government yeah. of the universe. Now, that's a minority view, but it just made better sense to me. Uh, I don't think that you have to necessarily commit yourself to that for the project of the book to still work. Yeah. Well, real quick, sorry, Joel. I, no, I, uh, I, I saw that and, and I, it was, it was funny. You go, yeah, no, I also conflate that, you know, uh, Chris conflates these two or says they're conflated. I also do that. And so I, I saw later um, that you did have this positive, positive role for concurrence. And so I was just wondering, um, when you're relating concurrence to, to governance and preservation, is it like a, a more 
foundational? Is it holding up the other two or is it like an emergent coming from the other two? I, I don't know if you thought through that, but. No, I think I just want to say that, um, that this is what Providence is. Okay. It's God's concurrent activity. Okay. Yeah, that's good. Do you, do you relate those three at all to, um, sort of like a John Framian triperspectival scheme or anything like that? Do you see them as being tied to the Trinity at all, Chris, or, you know, uh, I suspect, really? I suspect that one could, and I read a lot of frame early on, uh, in my studies and whatnot, not with regard to this. Mm-hmm. Um, so I may be influenced by that. I don't, I don't know, but I'm sure you could approach it that way. Okay. Okay. The, the, the uh, Framian triads run deep in our family. Yeah. We're, <laughs> we're, uh, we're big frame frame guys. So when I when I taught Christian ethics, um, I I used John Frame's doctrine of the Christian life, and uh, what we would do is my students would read each of the sections on the Ten Commandments and their application and whatnot, uh, which I really enjoy the way the frame approaches that. And then in class during the lectures and the question and answer time. I would teach the theory, the ethical theory, the meta-ethical theory and whatnot. And uh, of course, he uses the triads and the triperspectivalism and all of that. And it was interesting because I had a student who was taking both world religions with me and that class concurrently. There's that word again. <laughs> and, uh, and, and the ethics class opened his eyes to everything he had learned in courses with me prior to that, right? So <laughs> suddenly he saw, oh, this all fits together. You're saying this in every one of your courses, you know, because yep. there was a clear Vantillian thread that ran through that. Totally. So, so yeah. Yeah. Well, so, so Chris, um, what I'd love to do is to transition from what we've just talked about to sort of the practical meat of talking about the, the, uh, preconditions of science, natural laws, induction. How does, um, how, how, how does science rely or, or best comport with the biblical worldview? And so there's so many questions bound up with this. Why doesn't science conflict with, um, with Christianity? Why is Christianity actually the best explanation for the preconditions of science? Like the principle of induction? What is induction? How do natural laws all factor into this? And um, so if you could just... Just teach us a course just, real quick. <laughs> just teach us, teach us a doctoral level course <laughs> on uh, the relationship between science and Christianity. And the reason why I really want to get here is because I've got interactions with, with skeptics and atheists who will just bol- boldly just say... Well, the church has been, the church has opposed science at every turn. And, uh, you know, it's well documented that, um, or, or it's purely coincidental that the scientific revolution happened in the Christian world and things like that. And, and I would love to just hear you articulate uh, your view on that and give myself and other Christians listening some, some red meat to use in those kind of conversations. Yeah, well, there are a lot of different ways that people may try to propose some type of conflict between science, whatever that is, <laughs> and uh, religion, whatever that is, <laughs> or the Christian worldview, whatever that is. Uh, this is the philosophical training at work, right? <laughs> but um, uh, I mean, there are any number of different ways that people might approach that, probably on the on a street level, right? So what many of us are uh, will deal with are are simply these claims that 
because God is not some empirical entity by our own admission, right? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. So he's not something or someone that we can empirically study the way uh, that you might empirically study something else. This is something that Greg Bonson points out in his debate with uh, Gordon Stein, that famous debate, the great debate. Um, you know, he calls this the crackers in the pantry fallacy. Mm -hmm. If you want to discover whether or not there are crackers in the pantry, you go to the pantry, you open the door, and you look with your eyes to see whether or not there are crackers in the pantry. And if you're a man, you won't see the crackers in the pantry. And if you're a woman, <laughs> you will find them. No. But, uh, Especially if you uh, move them. Yeah, man. That hit way too close to home, Chris. I know. I know. I'm just, this is, this is, confession's good for the soul. But anyway. Um, but Bonson is making the point there that all questions are not answered in exactly the same way. Uh, looking for God or trying to figure out whether or not there's a God and this sort of thing is not the same as trying to figure out whether or not there are crackers in the pantry. Mm -hmm. uh, and then that gets into, uh, you know, if you want to put this into a more of a classical apologetic me methodology, you're simply talking about the refutation of, of naturalism, of metaphysical naturalism, which is at least the view that there is no God. Um, you know, you can get into different varieties of this. You have uh, materialist views where matter, which are things that are extended in, uh, it's something that's extended in space. Uh, matter is the only thing that exists. Well, that's uh, a very difficult claim to prove. In fact, I would say that that's an impossible claim to prove. And then you can appeal to various law-like realities, for instance, to rebut that claim. Uh, using logic, for example, um, in my general apologetics course, we, well, we don't now, but we used to go through J.P. Moreland scaling the secular city. And he offers an argument um, using logic and talking about the nature of logic to push back against uh, metaphysical naturalism and material, a materialist view. So anyway, um, that's one of the concerns you might come across from uh, an atheist or a skeptic, an unbeliever, is that God is not empirically verifiable. You'd have to go down the philosophical road then of saying, well, there are many things that we believe in that are not empirically discerned, right? Mm -hmm. And by empirical, I mean uh, using our five senses. Uh, yeah, there are like, lots of things we, go like, like the claim that all knowledge comes through our five senses, for, exactly. for example. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and, you know, that brings to mind how Habermas dealt with this, Gary Habermas, uh, early on in my learning, I was reading him and uh, he said, you know, if someone says, well, science is the only route to knowledge, that's self-refuting. You cannot test that claim in terms of a scientific methodology itself. Uh, and, and then he, he, he raised it again. He said, what about um, uh, the, the idea that science is the best route to knowledge? And he says, no, this, this does the same thing. Right. Uh, there's no way to test that uh, empirically. Uh, I just saw a, a note come up there on the screen, by the way, as Chris's camera broke in. So here's the explanation on that. My camera is often down the way that the shake machine at McDonald's is down. Oh, uh, but solid anyway. analogy. You know, <laughs> by, by the way, I, I've been putting up comments as we've been talking. You have some serious trolls. Uh, <laughs> 
I mean, this is some this is some top shelf level trolling that's going on. So, some of the stuff I can't even tell. You got people calling you a coward for not being <laughs> not having your camera up. So, I'm like, are these people serious? Like, what is what's up so with the hatred? If they're, if they're calling me coward, those that's my closest group of friends there. <laughs> okay. So, hey guys, they the, they're calling you a liberal, a coward. <laughs> And I'm 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 putting them up, and as I'm putting them up, Chris, I'm like, I'm sure these guys are joking, but wait, what if they're not? I'm like, <laughs> I'm fueling the hate. It. Yeah, yeah. post law, right? It's post law. You don't you don't know. Sometimes I don't know, but no, I I have a good feeling. I know where most of those are coming. From, okay, it, okay, good, good, good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, so that's one complaint. Another complaint uh, would be. Uh, and this is the route I'm going to go down because we could talk about this for a long time, right? The supposed conflict between religion and science. Alvin Plantinga does a great job of addressing just what these different complaints are uh, in his book, Where the Conflict Really Lies, mm -hmm. uh, Religion and Science or Science and Religion, Where the Conflict Really Lies. Uh, it's a yellow book for those who think of books the way I do. It's just a yellow book. Uh, anyway, um, you know, mm -hmm. another area clear there, there is. Yeah. Uh, another area clearly is. Uh, and by the way, that does relate to this book. I'll mention that in just a moment. But uh, another area this could happen is, of course, with uh, macroevolutionary Darwinian biology and uh, and creationism and intelligent design. You know what what's going on with the relation between those that sort of thing. That's often where you see um, some pushback as well from those who think there's a conflict there. Uh, planning it does a good job of showing why these things are not in conflict, even if you don't agree with all of planning his views. That's one of the great things about him is he just makes enough wiggle room for anyone <laughs> uh, by appealing to possibility. Right. Um, but uh, the way that I address the supposed conflict in my book uh, is I go the cultural route. And I refer to this as cultural apologetics. That mm -hmm. term has different meanings depending on who you're talking to and and what we're talking about. But what I mean by it with regard to my book is simply uh, this idea that if Christianity is true, if Christianity is a good thing, then we should see some of that in terms of fruits in the world. And so we're looking at the type of work that's done, for example, by Nancy uh, Piercy. I think that's how you pronounce her last name. That might be Percy. I think it's Piercy. Um, some of the work that's been done uh, by others to point out that, no, it's not really the case that Christianity is in conflict with science. It's actually the case, historically speaking. When you go back, you can look and see that Christianity, Christianized cultures, which is a whole other question, but Christianized cultures are what give birth to uh, science, modern science and technology and this sort of thing. So I explore that question at length uh, in my book, even contrasting it then with uh, uh, societies that are more affected by atheism, which you're not going to find that because that's always just a terribly minority view, right? Mm -hmm. um, but, but then also Islam is the big one, uh, looking at how uh, Islam has historically related to science. And there are different reasons that you could point to as to why science did not do well in, say, an Islamic context. Uh, there are lots of different reasons we could point to, right, as far as the way that their civil government is set up, all of that. But what I go after in my book is how these different religions, so secularism or Islam 
or Hinduism or Buddhism. And I would have loved to have gone into more of these, but I, you know, I couldn't for different reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I look at, at those and I say, they have a bad understanding of the relation of their deities to the world. Um, you, if- you really do. Chris, I, I loved this about your book is you really pull no punches when you're dealing even so you deal as, as far as what I've read so far, you deal with, um, naturalism, Buddhism, which mm-hmm. man, talk about trying to nail jello to the wall, try to define Buddhism and, uh, and, and sort of like, you know, core beliefs that hold throughout all the different sects of Buddhism. But then you even go after Islam, which in many ways is the top non-biblical competitor to Christianity in terms of worldview. And what you, what you do is you actually explain how, um, how not only is there a conflict within the Islamic worldview, uh, where their, their view of God doesn't comport with science, but you actually demonstrate uh, historically how all of their purported claims, where, where you'll have Muslim apologists talk about the great scientific accomplishments during the golden age of Islam and things like that, really, there really were none, or if there were any, they were very minimal. And most of the advancements that they made were in terms of mathematics and general knowledge, not in terms of actual scientific theory or scientific inquiry. And I really appreciated that because I do have some interactions periodically with with uh, Muslims. And I think that's a point that needs to be made. Yeah. And I think Parker would agree. I don't think that point is made enough. Yeah. Well, and, and by Christian apologists as well, right? It's, it's uh, yeah, the big Abrahamic religions. We can yeah, make yeah. sense of this. We're all kind of on board against atheism. And then later, maybe we'll talk against Islam. And yeah. Yeah, I, I tried to be, and people may not believe this, but I, I genuinely tried to be fair uh, in that area. Uh, of my studies and what would happen i'm i'm digging through uh the library looking for primary sources and primary source material and islam and looking at their philosophers and and all of these different things and uh you know i would find something oh here's one here's one thing that we can credit to the golden age of islam and this sort of thing and uh oftentimes i would get a note back from my advisor who had studied islam for years in depth and I'd get a note back and he'd say, no, this one's wrong. This was actually mm. discovered by so-and-so. And yeah. I, I kept thinking, well, what credit can I give them? You know, And uh, there is a name for this uh, that I found in some of the literature, and it's the conveyor belt theory. Uh, we did pull a lot out of uh, Muslim cultures, but it was in terms of what they had preserved through translation into Arabic that was later discovered in, in the Byzantine Empire and whatnot. Now, I'm not saying that's the sole source of our knowledge and that sort of thing. It, uh, I, I can hear some defenders of the classic tradition getting upset with me hmm. uh, in saying that. I'm not saying that's the sole source and all of that. But what, I'm, what I am saying is when we find contributions from uh, Islamic civilization, uh, to the scientific endeavor and technologies and whatnot, it's very, very limited, and it's typically borrowed from another culture, uh, preserved through uh, Arabic and through the Muslim culture, and then passed on uh, elsewhere. So, uh, and there are very good reasons for that, I believe. But you also make the point too that even when the the uh, the record shows that Islamic scholars 
translated ancient texts, let's say Greek texts, into Arabic. And then from there, those texts were uh, given to, you know, they they found their way over to Europe and were instrumental, you know, later on in Europe during um, the, uh, the, the scientific revolution and, and things like that. Uh, you even make the point that even that doesn't really add a lot to the scientific endeavor or revolution because the Greeks weren't any more scientific anyway. It's not like, like you look at Aristotle's, uh, I was always taught that Aristotle was sort of the first scientist, but you actually make the point that really even, even classical and, and, um, and ancient Greek thought didn't add really much at all to what we now consider to be modern science. So that really doesn't help out the Islamic claim that, that they sort of spurred on the scientific revolution either, does it? Right. Yeah. I mean, you have, <laughs> you have these, when you, when you have these many various entities and deities that are running the show, that doesn't give you a very good basis for uniformity or regularity or predictability with regard to the contingent realm. Right. And so even in Platonism, um, you know, classically understood, you've got this world of, of the forms and ideals and all of that. But the, the issue for Plato is always how do you bring those into uh, correspondence with the contingent realm, right? Well, what's the mm -hmm. meeting point? Is it the human soul? Well, what does that look like? And, and then, of course, by the time Plato is discovering some of these difficulties, Aristotle comes along and completely undoes his, he doesn't completely undo it. I know he's building off him, but still he, he, he goes against his, professor right this is a time-honored tradition uh, you, you turn on on your mentor right yeah um so yeah and and there's something else behind that as well and i i hope this didn't presuppositionally blind me to the project or something i was reading these in other works and these objections to the greek thought but there's often this idea that you know here we are on the fast track to uh post-modernity whatever that is again, right? Uh, we are actually seeing, I think, the fruits of a really bad view that was taught in some corners of the academy. Uh, that view has hit the populace now. I mean, it's, it is our pop culture. It's, uh, we're surrounded, we're swimming in post-modernity. And uh, I mean, just look around. <laughs> Every, everything we're going through right now seems to be yeah. uh, as a result of this. Mm -hmm. And so, the warning for years from Christian apologists in particular was to watch out for this thing. And some said, oh, it's nothing to be worried about. It's just this thing that's held in some corners of the academy. It's laughable. Well, it's not laughable to those who aren't trained in philosophy, who aren't trained in the academy. Uh, if it feels good, do it is is pretty consistent with a fallen sinful human nature. Mm -hmm. uh, so that that's a pretty popular program for approaching life. Anyway, the temptation is to say, well, let's get back to the Greeks. Let's get back to the cradle of Western civilization. That will take care of all of this. And I would say no, because Plato and Aristotle and Socrates and, you know, you know, Greek mythology, these things are not Christian. Uh, right. We're not looking at it. It's I, I hate to say this, but I'm going to. It's similar to what I see going on when you get into the debates between conservative theology and liberal theology. Well, for one thing, these are very closely associated with political terms, right? Mm -hmm. Conservative mm -hmm. and liberal. And it's not always an instance of conservative versus liberal. It's simply, does this comport with scripture or not? Right. Is right. this what God has said or not? 
you know, the Pharisees looked very conservative to me, but they were liberal. <laughs> they were mm, they were creating right. their entire system of religion on the basis of something other than this is what God has said. Right. And so we want to get back not to the Greeks, not to the the modernists, not to the postmodernists. We want to get back to the Bible. That should you know, be like a show or something, huh? Yeah, yeah. You know what is so fascinating about this is there is this um, that that desire to go back to the um, to the Greeks. I mean, you you there's a very Renaissance kind of uh, feel about that. You know, ad fontes, go back to the the original sources. Um, it reminds me of this interview I heard recently on the Unbelievable podcast. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. Great podcast. I had Justin Briley on the Think podcast uh, a while ago. And there it is. That There's all well, set up for well, the name drop. Listen, now I can say, this reminds, later on, I'm going to say, this reminds me of my good friend, Chris Bolt. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but um, he had this historian, Tom Holland on, uh, no relation to the Spider-Man actor, I don't think. But he uh, he talked about how he was disabused of this misconception that he had that um, that American and Western civilization sort of finds its best historical analogy and root in the ancient Roman world. Um, when in reality, when he went back and looked and he would read about Caesar and what was considered virtue, um, what he realized is I'm not Roman at all in my thinking. In fact, I've got a lot more in common with the apostle Paul in my thinking in terms of morality and, and, mm -hmm. you know, what makes a good civilization than I do in Caesar. Um, and, uh, and, and so I hear echoes of that in what you're saying that, you know, we don't need to go back to the ancient Greeks if we want to return to, um, to a, a, a well-ordered thought life or scientific way of thinking. Really, we need to go back to the, the Christians who, launched the scientific revolution. Uh, you know, we have a lot, uh, um, you might, I, I wonder if you'd agree with this. Does Neil deGrasse Tyson have a lot more in common with like a uh, Copernicus or Newton than he does with like an Aristotle? I'm just, I'm throwing those out there, but what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I'm, I'll be honest. I'm really not that familiar with him other than some of his uh, comments that are quoted and kind of stand alone and being foolish. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm not that familiar with him. Uh, I would say that most, I, I'm assuming he's somewhat of a militant atheist and a, uh, uh, he's into scientism. Mm -hmm. Would that be yeah. Yeah. correct? Yeah, I think assessment? that's fair. I think that's and fair. And I think that that is flowing. Uh, I, I think that's actually logical positivism for the masses. Yeah. And as much as I hate to say it, because David Hume is one of my favorite guys, not because I agree with him, everybody gets that confused. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I hate to say that logical positivism is largely grounded in the philosophy of David Hume, in that radical empiricism. The problem is that the logical positivist and folks like uh, the, the gentleman you're talking about, as well as uh, you know Richard Dawkins and uh, these various new atheists, that was the thing when I first got into apologetics, right? New atheism. Um, they are, that's just logical positivism for the masses. And they're very dogmatic. They're not taking Hume's entire program into account. Right. They don't realize that in accepting his objections to natural religion and natural theology, they're also accepting his radical empiricism and hence his radical skepticism yeah. uh, they won't own up to that this program of humes actually undermines the scientific endeavor that they base their entire lives on so yeah well that brings us right to the the problem of induction which um 
which yeah it's one of my favorite puzzles uh, favorite problems of philosophy and specifically because they pe people don't address it um you, you talk to I'm, i work with uh, college students college athletes and the dudes in the science um I'm like hey man so your professor ever talk about the problem of induction or anything what's induction you know I, they don't they don't address they don't talk about it and so i have to teach them in order to show them how flawed it is um and and how this problem is a huge problem even today that most scientists just it seems from my experience they just kind of slough it off oh that's that's for the philosophers they we don't worry about that we we just do the hard the hard science here right uh it's very rare to find a, a scientist who is conversant with uh, the philosophy of science. Mm. Uh, there was a, a Christian professor in my undergrad, professing Christian, who had attended Johns Hopkins and, uh, and was known as one of the better, I believe her area was chemistry, but I, I, I'm not positive on that, but I believe it was chemistry. And she was known for being one of the top professors there in, the, in that area, uh, just a, a scholar. And she actually spent her spare time sitting in with us on our philosophy courses. And I was so impressed by that because she wanted to know what it was that, you know, was was underlying the things that she did in the lab and, yeah. you know, the mathematics of it and, and all of that sort of thing. And so, you know, we would come to something like Occam's razor and she would recognize that she didn't know that as Occam's razor, she knew it as parsimony, right? Mm -hmm. And they talked about parsimony in the lab. Yeah. If, if you have two competing theories that equally, uh, that explain the data equally well, you go with the simpler of the two theories, which by the way, uh, that's the next paper you need to write, Parker. Mm -hmm. uh, you wrote one on IBE, uh, yeah. which I think is very closely related to this inductive problem. Uh, we, we, need one on, we need one on that as well, because Hume called that into question too. Why do we, yeah. why do we tend to choose the simpler of the two theories? So. Yeah, oh, that's great. Uh, yeah, so, so um, in induction, one thing I, I really wanted to ask you about, and it, it's a little bit periphery and uh, feel free to, to reject, but in answering the problem of induction, you know, I love Van Til. I read most of Van Til's works and rereading them. And what I've seen in Van Til and in a lot of the popular presuppers, we love to just bag on Descartes. And Descartes was, uh, you know, he, he was the turn towards the self. He was, it, it was him and his philosophy that, that started this, uh, this fall. And in, when I actually read Descartes myself, I saw him say, you know, if we want to justify our senses, he, he didn't quite say in the exact same way that, uh, that Hume did or later. Um, philosophers talked about the problem of induction, but he raised it in his search for certainty, and he's doubting this, and he's doubting that, and then he's doubting his senses, and then he went all the way down to to what he thought was ground level, and then justified induction on the way back up. And so he he says, you know, cogito ergo sum, um, I am in the I'm the ground of, or I am a, a thinking substance, and then from there, you know, I I see it as is a little Vantillian, and maybe you could you could. Uh, uh, disabuse me of that, but he he starts with himself. I would say in Vantillian terms as approximate starting point, and then he uses this ontological argument to show that God's the ultimate starting point. And be, he even says, if you don't presuppose God, you won't be able to make sense of your senses. Something along those lines. And I just wondering what your thoughts like. Why do we why do we still hate this dude so much? Yeah, let me see if I can unpack that some. Well, I think we hate him so much because he basically destroyed Western epistemology. Um, yeah. <laughs> because we think <laughs> we think that if there's not certainty with with some knowledge claim mm -hmm. that 
we don't have knowledge. And that's not always the case, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, the discussion of certainty is a whole nother discussion anyway. Right. What are we talking yes. about when we talk about that? Is that epistemic certainty? Yeah. Is it maximal epistemic warrant? Is it psychological certainty? Is it a blessed assurance? Jesus is mine. You know, uh, mm-hmm. you ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. I mean, there's there's so many different ways that we can Technically approach. true. Yeah. Do you even sing that in Chicago? No, we don't. Okay. In in uh, Chicago, we just rap. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we rap it. But anyway. Um, it's funny the different my ordination service the music guy asked me what do you want sung for your ordination service and i said what about be thou my vision he had never heard of be thou what? my vision wow okay no, so we, just, I never we do the blues version of, of every song nice nice yeah. so anyway let's unpack descartes real quick that's that's a good point so first of all descartes is a really good illustration of a transcendental argument that's not necessarily the transcendental argument right. or something like that, right? There's a transcendental direction to his arguments. Mm-hmm. So, for example, you might say, how do I know whether or not I exist? Well, if I affirm that I exist, uh, I have to exist to affirm that I exist and therefore I exist. If I deny that I exist, I have to exist in order to deny that I exist. And so I exist, right? So whether in affirmation or denial, um, I am actually affirming or I'm presupposing uh, that I exist, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's a that's an instance of a type of transcendental argument. This is the example that Sean Choi uses in his uh, contribution to, I don't remember the name of it. I think it's called Reasons for Faith. Uh, but anyway, I think it's edited by Chad Meister. It's Meister. been years Meister. since I've looked yeah. at this. Um, so that's one thing, I think, with what you're saying there, I think there is a transcendental argument. That's a good illustration of a transcendental argument outside of presuppositional literature. Mm-hmm. Uh, number two, you were talking about you can't really, I mean, you don't know whether or not you can trust your senses and whatnot, apart from assuming that this God exists, presupposing that this God exists. I think that that is uh, either a reductio ad absurdum or a transcendental argument of sorts akin to I'm being anachronistic here, akin to Alvin Plantinga's evolutionary argument against naturalism. Mm. The the demon, or whatever that thing is, Yeah, right. the, the professor who taught me this studied in French, so she would actually use the French terms. But uh, the demon there, uh, in Plantinga's scheme, is the combination of naturalism with evolution. Mm. That's the issue. We don't know if we can trust our cognitive faculties, the reliability of our mm. cognitive faculties. And this this undermines not only our belief in naturalism and evolution, but every belief Everything. that's a deliverance of our cognitive faculties. Wow. That's Chris, the demon. Man, I wish I had heard you say that like two weeks ago, because I did a debate about two weeks ago uh, with an atheist, Ken Leonard. And um, he he brought that to me and said, hey, you know, how do you know? You don't have Descartes' demon, you know, deceiving you about everything. And I, I just simply appealed to uh, the Christian worldview as a, a whole. And I said, I sort of pulled an Eli Ayala kind of move. And I said, look, within the Christian worldview system, God reveals himself and reveals truth to us such that we can be certain of, of some things. That's not part of my my scheme. But thinking about it in the terms that you just mentioned, um, I, I wish I had thought about that because you're absolutely right. The evolutionary argument against naturalism is sort of the equivalent of that. There's this demon that could be deceiving you about everything. And that is your 
unguided evolutionary process. Um, it's an undercutting defeater for all of our beliefs. That there, that's a real, that's a real challenge to evolutionism. I, I plus plus atheism. I hadn't thought about that. That's very good. Yeah, I think that's the impetus for. Of course, the the argument from reason goes way back. I think it's H. W. B. Joseph is the name of the first account of that argument, a style of that argument that I could find. But, uh, but that, is he is he before uh, Balfour? Do you know <sighs> James, James Balfour? I'm uh, not turn of the positive. century. I'm not. Yeah. There's something yeah. I wrote on this somewhere, but it's been a long <laughs> time. Uh, because I mean, it 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 remanifests all the time, right? Rick, Victor Rappert yeah. makes a number of these types yeah. of arguments, and uh, and C.S. Lewis in Miracles, yeah. and um, you I got to so, I got to so plug my guy uh, Jim Slagle. It's a crazy expensive book. It's called the Epistemological Skyhook, and actually he traces the history of that, and then develops an, another like uh, a priori teleological argument. Well, it's, there it's, you go. Awesome. I'll defer to that for sure. Yeah. Uh, the third thing I wanted to say real quick on Descartes then is the ontological argument. So yeah. the, the Vantillian criticism of the ontological argument is simply that our concept of God in mm. an autonomous or would-be autonomous sense uh, is not the concept of the revealed God of Scripture through analogy. Does that make sense? So, yeah. Is that is that because of revelation? Is that um, you know we 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 have to have this God maybe because of uh, transcendence and incomprehensibility? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Wait, wait. Could you yeah. could you say that again? So, um, yes, I was going to. So, if if we, I mean, it's a mouthful, right? So, <laughs> right, if, right. If uh, and and by the way, that that's one of the thing with with one of the things with presuppositional methodology in particular, but, but philosophical discourse and apologetics and whatnot, uh, you know, people will say, oh, well, you know, this is for people who are in the academy or this is for people who are smart and all that. No, it's, it's not. And mm -hmm. we're all called upon to, to do apologetics, right? To not only um, uh, tell people the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for our sins and our place, not only to tell people to believe in Jesus Christ, but but also to give a testimony of our own experience of having believed that gospel, and also then to to aim to persuade and to, now that's a whole other discussion I'm not going to get into, but I, I'm saying to offer uh, this this often intellectual type account uh, of why we believe what we believe, um, mm. you know, and we see examples of that in scripture. So when you're doing that, when you run into these huge terms, like I'm using now, because I assume many of our listeners probably read up on these things and listen to these things. But when we're using these big terms, all we have they to will do now. <laughs> if, if you don't know what they mean, uh, look them up or ask the person using them. What do you, what do you mean by that? Um, because all these terms are, they're just fancy words to yeah. summarize something that right. takes a lot longer to say otherwise, right? Yeah, it's shorthand. Yeah, so you just unpack the shorthand. So, um, and I just saw a note that we have to begin to wrap up. So that was probably an hour ago. I don't know. But um, <laughs> anyway, we, uh, uh, yeah. So the concept that we have of God in our mind in a, a would-be autonomous sense. In other words, if we think that we can just think up, okay, here's how I conceive of God apart from any consideration of how God has revealed himself to me, I run into problems. I'm not going to get, this is what Van Til would say, I'm not going to get to the God of the Bible that mm -hmm. way. Uh, we are to believe in God, take him on faith, the way that he reveals himself to us by way of analogy. And what I mean by that, again, it, that is what Parker said. It's the incomprehensibility of God. It's the transcendence of God. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our 
thoughts. He is higher than we are. And so it's not that we can't know God. It's simply that we know God through the way that he has revealed himself to us. Now, I got into a discussion with Paul Helm on this point, hmm. and Paul Helm makes the case. He believes that uh, that famous presuppositionalist text, actually, in Hebrews, uh, when God uh, swore to Abraham, he swore by himself because hmm. there was no one higher by whom he might swear, right? And, and Paul Helm made the case that that gives us a justification for using an ontological argument because God is the greatest conceivable being. Hmm. Yeah, I like it. I do too. I don't know. Chris, did you take him to task uh, for that or what? Did he repent? Well, we won't talk about all that. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, I, I secretly love the ontological argument. I love, I, I, not, not, uh, I like, I like Anselm's. So I, in fact, I, I kind of, anyway, I like I think, Anselm's. I think Bonson wants to, to reinterpret that as a presuppositional way, though. I, I think he says right. like the modern mm -hmm. planning on, I don't know if he was wrong for planning us or not. Right. But. And I mean, that is the faith seeking understanding tradition. And yeah. when you read Anselm, he's not a dry philosopher. He's, he's doing his devotions. Yeah. He's mm -hmm. praying. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Love it. So, so, okay. Before we answer a few questions, by the way, I, are you okay answering a few of these questions and comments, Chris? Cause Absolutely. are you okay for time here? All right. Absolutely. Um, can you, can we just do this? Can we just sort of um, lay out an argument here? Um, just because we've, we've, we've covered a, a lot of ground, but why is Christianity, the biblical worldview, the best explanation for why science works or science is possible. And if you could give us like the one or two minute version of that, I, I, I don't know if that's possible, but I'd like to be able to sort of leave our listeners with that nugget because if they don't understand anything else, I think it, that would be important for them to, to get as a takeaway. Yes. Uh, Baptist preachers struggle with brevity. But, <laughs> yes. um, if you could alliterate we... it too, that'd be good. <laughs> I was just thinking that. Um, uh, so, so science relies upon conceptual tools that are best understood and provided for and accounted for within a Christian worldview, uh, a Christian approach to knowledge, uh, by which I mean, I mean, we can go with Orthodox Christianity, what's essential to Christianity, uh, the Trinity, um, the, uh, the, the person of Christ, uh, two natures, one person, uh, salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, all of this is intertwined, inextricably uh, intertwined, and uh, related to the essence of Christianity. Of course, Van Til would want to defend Reformed Christianity as the truest expression of what he finds set forth in Scripture, which is the Word of God. Uh, but these conceptual tools I'm referring to uh, can include things like the big three, logic, um, uh, science, of course, we'll dig into that, and morality. You need logic in science, right? You, you don't want to say that something can be the case and not be the case at the same time in the same respect or something to that effect. You need uh, morality in science. You need some sort of meta-ethical theory. You don't want to carry out uh, experiments that violate these ethical guidelines. You don't, you don't, it's not okay to just lie uh, in scientific research, these sorts of things. Um, and then we'll dig into science a little bit more here. So you need to be created in such a way uh, that you are at home in the world so that your senses are generally reliable, 
so that um, the conceptions in your mind uh, roughly correspond to the objective uh, material reality around you. Uh, these are all things that are necessary in some way to the scientific endeavor, but the one that I really focus on in my book uh, is the principle of induction. It's been called the uniformity of nature. You can call it regularities. Uh, I'm not going to argue that point right now, but this is simply the idea that our God is a God who is a God of order. Uh, he is a God who wants us to be at home in the world, to be able to come to the knowledge of ourselves, the knowledge of the world, but also the knowledge of him. And he has, of course, revealed himself to us in general revelation, in the things around us, in even in ourselves, in the sense that we're created in the image of God, not in the sense that we are divine or something like that. But we're created in the image of God. Uh, this world is his revelation to us. And so knowledge is a good thing in the Christian worldview. It's not a bad thing, not a thing to be discouraged. It's a thing to be encouraged because it brings glory to God. And so God has imposed these regularities and imposes these regularities on his creation. And that is what we understand as uh, the laws of science or the laws of nature. Uh, this gives us a basis then to make general and particular predictive inferences with regard to the scientific endeavor. This means that when you crack your egg open in the morning to eat breakfast, you get an egg that comes out of there. You don't get a dragon that comes out. Um, we would generally expect an egg to come out of the eggshell, and that's for good reason. It's, it's because this is an orderly world that we are created to exist in. You know, you are disappointing my eight-year-old son so bad right now because <laughs> he's he'll ask me – he's very, very sharp, but he'll ask me questions all the time like, well, Dad, like – like I could see him literally saying, "Like Dad, what if an what if a dragon comes out when you crack the egg?" He hasn't said that exact <laughs> that exact thing, but you know, like you know, for me, it's well because, well because that's just not going to happen. Like we just don't we just don't live in that kind of world. But now, now, Chris, now I can go to him and go, "Listen, son, have you ever heard of regularity or the principle <laughs> the principle of induction?" And you know what? He'll actually understand that because he's always looking for ways to to play out the implications of the stuff. When I catechize him in the morning or when we do family devotions at night, he's always looking for the, the connection points between what we are studying and the real world. So, That's so good. Yeah, well, now, so now you can point him to the bad man, Chris Bolt, who destroyed his dreams of dragons. <laughs> <and all> that. <laughs> right. Son, have you ever Listen, heard of Dr. Chris Bolt? <laughs> I mean, look, the, the gospel is what, uh, isn't it that, you know, the son of God comes and slays the dragon and saves the girl? Amen. So there you go. That's good. That's good. So um, is this a good time for us to address a few questions? Are we good to do that? I am. I'm good for whatever you guys need. Okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to scroll through here, man. You got some serious trolling going on, but let's say <laughs> um, now, do you know, do you know someone named, I mean, this can't be the person's real name, but Brigand Bladestorm. This, this isn't even, what is this? <laughs> What is this? Speaking of so, dragons, this person, do you know this person? <laughs> that's it. That's my this, question. <laughs> this person is actually a contributor to Choosing Hats. Uh, okay. Okay. So the question is, why does Christian hitter Twitter hate science more specifically? That's it. That's my question. What, I don't know what to do with this. Do you know what to do with this, Chris? Is this a real I don't, thing? I don't know what to do with this. It's not really a real thing other than okay. to say um, 
that it does make a good point, uh, which is that people throw this term around science. You know, well, that's not what the science is saying. Look, science doesn't say anything. Right, uh, what right. science are you talking about? What yeah. what method of science are you talking about? Even getting into the methodological question, are we are we talking about? You know, when we learn the scientific method in elementary school, what you discover in philosophy of science is this is very much an oversimplification of what's going on. There's been an entire history uh, of the scientific method and, and how it's developed and whatnot. So, Yeah, no, that's that's very good. And you even mentioned in your book, don't you, that sometimes people view science uh, almost um, in an idolatrous way. Absolutely. Nowadays. And um, this is this is a point I was actually discussing with. Uh, someone fairly recently, uh, I, I made a point about this and they got upset. So I, I wrote a private message to clarify uh, people who push back against whatever may be a popular conclusion in science. Um, and so I'm not getting into any of these debates or taking a position on this. I want to make that clear. But when we get to these topics that are just obscenely controversial, like vaccines versus anti-vaccination or Recently, it's the flat earth view and, uh, you know, these sorts of things. Oftentimes, those who are in the camp that's considered the minority position or the anti-science position are actually using what they deem scientific reasons to bolster their claims. Right. I mean, if you watch television, turn on television, you watch a commercial, it can be a commercial for the silliest thing in the world. It has nothing to do with science and they will somehow try to appeal to science to make you buy it. Yeah, it is somewhat of an idol in that sense. Yeah, that's a good point. Okay, um, Lucas Giolis says, sociologist John Evans argues that only academics care about supposed knowledge conflict between science and religion, but the general public only cares about cases of moral conflict. As a pastor, what do you think about that claim? I think it's a false claim. Uh, I mean, just speaking to to my experience, but I think that I can speak more generally as well. Um, you at the beginning of this episode, right? We discussed this uh, when you run into people on the street, they just will assume, for example, that uh, that Christianity is at odds with modern uh, biology and biological evolution and this sort of thing, which by the way, I, I, that's a whole different discussion. Don't, don't hear me people as saying that I'm a theistic evolutionist or something I'm not, yeah. but um, and this can run both ways, right? So, so you could have the atheist complaining about Christianity, but you can also have the Christian complaining about evolution being taught in the school, right? Uh, or, or all these things that they're calling science or, oh, they don't know, the doctors don't know. By the way, a lot of times the doctors don't know. Uh, so, uh, no, I I don't Very think true. that we only care about cases of moral conflict. Although I I can construe, for example, something like the debate over whether or not evolution should be taught in public schools or whether or not Christianity should be taught in public schools. I I can understand that in the sense of a moral conflict, and maybe that's what Evans is talking about. Park, you good with that? What, yeah, you, do you want me to contradict? No, him? I don't know. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I was actually going to say uh, we we should bring on our surprise guest, uh, Balant or uh, Balant. I, I don't know how to pronounce it, but we could talk. <laughs> we could talk uh, conceptual versus world directed TAs, and just now he's yes. he's not waiting in the wings. But no. I, I talk about it all the time. Balant, and I Ballant. think his last name is pronounced Bakefi. Okay. Um, 
but uh, I'm surprised he's not uh, listening. Actually, yeah, yeah, I don't know. Maybe he'll he'll uh, he'll pop into my my personal messages uh, later. I'm sure. <laughs> okay, uh, next question. This is an easy one. When are you writing the early high school? level version of the world in his hands oh that's a good question uh you know i haven't that's funny because i talk to this person almost every day um i haven't given that much thought but that's a good idea actually that you know what that is a good idea because i am always looking for resources for um high school age uh i'm, I'm actually working on a curriculum an apologetics curriculum right now for my kids homeschool co-op um, for the for the high schoolers, and there really is a dearth of good presuppositional resources for that age group. I mean, a lot of it is like you know the case for Christ for teens and that kind of thing, and very evidential. Which you know, when I was in high school, I loved all that stuff. But um, man, can you Parker? Can you imagine if we had been introduced to presup in high school? They were in wild. Imagine going through the cage stage uh, in high school. Oh, dude! Can you imagine where we'd be at today? We wouldn't have. I wouldn't have finished. That would be. <laughs> um, okay. Um, he he. His concern is almost exactly the same as yours. There, uh, what you just said about there just being not very many materials out there for apologetics for younger people. Yeah. Uh, presuppositionally, as far as presuppositional materials, there there is the Pushing the Antithesis book that has Bonson's name on it, but I, I actually believe it was written by, was it Gary DeMar? Uh, it's based off um, Bonson's notes. The first two chapters are clearly Bonson, but I think the rest of it is not. Um, and then, I mean, when you listen to enough Bonson, you know if it's Bonson or not. Um, and then the other one would be that book by Pratt, uh, Richard Pratt. What's the name of that? Every thought captive. Every thought Every captive. Thought captive. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Mm -hmm. Which is great. Up, I think the last quarter of that book, he lost me. He started getting into all these different examples, and I'm like, okay, but that's yeah, that is a good book. Yeah. Uh, what's your next book? So I'm working on a few different projects, um, but I think that my next book is probably going to be an, an introduction to. Uh, like a philosophical approach to presuppositional apologetics. You get, you know, you can, you can get the more biblically oriented books on presuppositional apologetics. You can get uh, uh, the explanations, right? The methodological type books like Van Til, the Van Til reader, you know, uh, Bonson's Van Til apologetics, Van Til's apologetics. Um, but what you don't find a lot of, are books on here is how this method is actually applied in terms of specific arguments. Uh, and I think I'd like to, to do that. Yeah. So, uh, next one, uh, do you miss poning atheists on IRC? <laughs> no, <laughs> <laughs> that's good. That's, that's a simple one. <laughs> IRC. What is that? Uh, something relay chat. What is that? You know, I'm not even sure what that stands for, uh, but it's the it's an old chat client. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Were Were you on the uh, the uh, elusive and mythological uh, chat channel for for Doctor White at all? Did you ever make that the dividing list? line? Uh, there may have been a time when I was seen there. Nice. That that thing is legendary. Once once he talked about uh, Doctor Anderson being on there, and it's like, man, there there's some legends behind the scene. He'll well, out of here and there. Of course, there there's so many. 
things are so crazy right now in evangelicalism, and there there's so many politics all over the place. Uh, but uh, James R. White has had a, a significant impact on a lot of people um, early on in in their study of Christian apologetics and theology. So, and and that's the same with me. Uh, I mean, he's. He's he's certainly one of the better apologists of our time. So if not Definitely. the best, he's I think he's got more debates than any other living apologist. Yeah, it's insane the amount of uh, of stuff he puts out. Yeah. This this next question uh, this is my next door neighbor Ildin Cho. He says, uh, "How can a Christian be a six day creationist yet still agree with science?" Yeah, that's a that's a really good question, uh, but something that. Uh, goes into a lot of detail to try to uh, answer that, right? So I would say, and this makes some of my friends uncomfortable, um, but I say that I start with the Word of God on this, right? Uh, there is, in my mind, even though I take, uh, I guess you would call it a concordance view, uh, where Scripture and the things we discover through true science, right, uh, through, through scientific findings in the world, those are never going to ultimately be in conflict with one another because these are the two great books, right? It's the book of nature and it it's the, the book of scripture. And these are not going to be in conflict with one another at the end of the day. And so if I come to the book of Genesis, this is predominantly an exegetical question for me. Uh, yes. I don't, and this could get me killed too, I guess, but I don't, consider this a matter of essential Christian orthodoxy. Uh, How dare you, sir? Per, per se, uh, but but an exegetical question. Uh, when we look at age of the earth questions in the book of Genesis, I myself hold to what's called a solar day view, uh, which is very similar to the so-called literal six-day creation view. I used to be a day-ager, um, but I'm not anymore. Uh, and the reason why there was, again, it was an exegetical concern. Someone said to me, okay, uh, evening and morning, what is that? And I said, well, that, that indicates the end of this lengthy period of time. And he said, okay, but in my view, uh, I can talk about an actual evening and morning. You can't do that. This is just like poetic or something. Like there's no filler for this phrase. And that's actually, even though I, I know there are lots of other arguments <laughs> on, on all of this, that was what did it for me. And I thought, you know what, you're right. And I may not know how all of this works out in terms of uh, the age of the earth and scientific findings and whatnot, uh, but I'm going to hold that view and begin to work from that presupposition. And uh, as I've First of all, this is not that interesting of a question to me. I mean, I'm, I'm not talking about that against uh, Mr. Cho here, but uh, I, it's not that interesting of a question to me in terms of my studies and whatnot. I just don't find it a, a concern to my faith or the questions that I have about my faith, which is odd because for many people it is. Uh, so I haven't studied this a great deal, but what I wanted to say is as I've studied it more, uh, I've found a lot of very good science that, uh, that supports this position. Uh, of a younger uh, universe and whatnot. And I would say that the philosophy of science plays into this as well. Like uh, having a little bit of anti-realism built in is not necessarily a problem when we're approaching some of these questions. But I do see that uh, um, this this is someone who's into biology 
And so I would uh, point that person maybe towards some of those in the intelligent design movement and some of their observations about um, uh, biological life and uh, the arguments that macroevolutionary biologists uh, talk about. Um, you know, some of those have some bad assumptions behind them that you simply pull the rug out from under it and, and approach it in, in that way. So that's a generally unhelpful answer to that question. I apologize. I'm just, no. I'm just not good as good on the specifics of that as a biologist would certainly be. So I would point you to other people's works on that, particularly those within the intelligent design movement. Um, I know that they tend toward old earth uh, creationism, mm -hmm. but uh, anyway. No, it's good. And, and even, you know, what you talk about in, in your book in terms of natural laws, um, how the biblical worldview is the best explanation for those anyway. So, so, um, it really, if, if, if the Bible is essential to understanding what's going on in the world and to understanding uh, scientific data, then really the age of the earth does come down to first an exegetical question, a hermeneutical question, and then it's a scientific question, I think. Yeah, it's right? a much softer concern. And, and this mm -hmm. runs parallel mm -hmm. to evidentialism, right? I mean, it's, right. you know, well, what if we discover the bones of Jesus? Well, that's not going to happen. <laughs> right, <laughs> like, right. I can tell you for certain that's not going to happen. Right. And, and it, okay, if you want to look at this story where it seems as though they did discover them, then we'll deal with that on an evidential level. Mm -hmm. But understand presuppositionally, you know, in the case of a young earth or whatever, if scripture says that the that there's a six day creation, I'm going with that yeah. because to reject that is to undermine the entire scientific endeavor. I don't have science in the first place. Yeah. That seems like a cop out, but it's not. It's the grander answer that then sets us up to even be able to talk about these more specific concerns um, about, you know, age of the earth. And whatnot. Uh, go to uh, a TRIA blog or TRIA blog. Uh, dot com i believe uh steve hayes he has a, a lot of articles um on this topic as well he he takes the solar day view and interacts with some of the science and the philosophy of science but so much is determined by the assumptions we start with when we yeah. come to a question like that yeah that's good and that's t-r-i-a-b-l-o-g-u-e.com i think correct i believe so okay um i'm i think i have uh let's see a couple couple more questions here but um really quick our our friend i don't know how you pronounce this team Ta taco taco oh slick. team taco slick oh okay uh he he <laughs> he encouraged parker and i to be sure to have this famous liberal back on yeah so um he's really man apparently it's it's you know he's he's saying this in jest there are some who actually believe this apparently and i'm thinking <laughs> I go around saying that unless you believe in Jesus, you can't know anything. And that makes me a liberal. Okay. Uh, well, maybe you need to adopt the uh, King James Bible. Maybe that would help. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, okay. So now here's a comment from someone named Joel Pearson. And I, I copied it and pasted it in because it was a comment in the unbelievable group. I have no idea if, if uh, Joel is still watching. Um, with a name like Joel, I have a hard time thinking he could be uh, you know, that far off. But the, the comment actually says otherwise. So here's what he says. He says, well, at least if they start from accepting science, they'll be, <laughs> this is good. Um, and he's commenting to the very existence of this episode that we're filming right now. He says, well, at least if they start accepting science, they'll become less religious. 
There have been a lot of lies about Christianity being the source of science rather than what really happened. Christianity set science back by a thousand years. Um, so I guess my only question for you, Chris, is how can you follow a religion that set science back for a thousand years? <laughs> Uh, well, it doesn't set science back. It actually uh, provides the preconditions for the intelligibility of the scientific endeavor, first and foremost. And if, if someone wants to explain to me how they answer the concern raised by David Hume and others, such as Bertrand Russell and, and even into the modern day, uh, as far as how we, we answer them, answer this problem of induction, then, then be my guess. But I've studied those answers and I find them wanting. And I believe that uh, those who are serious about philosophy of science will likewise find them wanting. Uh, even our modern approach to science through something like a modified uh, Popperian approach or a hypothetical uh, deductivism uh, is it sidesteps. Popper's actually brilliant in this sense. He tries to sidestep uh, the problems raised by Hume to say that induction can be used in this broad general sense not to give us positive knowledge with regard to scientific information but rather to inform these sweeping conjectures or theories that we might set forth and then what we do is we go about trying to rigorously test these theories we've come up with uh, to try to refute those theories and insofar as a theory is tested and is not refuted, it's rational to continue to hold that theory. However, what you understand with this deductive approach is that science is not, in fact, a route to truth at all. We can't have scientific knowledge per se. We simply have these rational uh, theories, or at least we think that they're rational to hold. The difficulty here is that it falls right back into the problem of induction because when we rigorously test this theory and it succeeds in the lab and it's not refuted, we don't know the very next moment when we're done, we don't know if the situation has changed because we don't have a uniformity or regularity in nature at that point. And so when you, when you hear people talk about falsifiability and whether or not a theory is falsifiable or can be falsified, this is what they're referring to, whether they know that or not. They're referring to one aspect of Karl Popper's approach to Sir Karl Popper's approach to science. So uh, I'm reminded here when he says this of a comment that Dr. Habermas made once. He said, you know, these students hear these offhand remarks or off-the-cuff remark by a professor at some secular institution, and it just it destroys what they believe about Christianity, and it's just it's just a uh, just because I say so sort of thing. It's just an assertion, and and so what I would say to this person is, first of all, check out my book <laughs> because I I don't just believe lies I've been told. I don't think you can demonstrate where that may be the case. I don't just believe the lies I've been told about science and where it originated and all of that. I studied under people who did not share my worldview, who were not Christians. I studied under people in the area of religion. I studied under a Muslim. I studied under uh, a person who is uh, a, a liberal Christian, I mean, in the truest sense. Uh, I studied under uh, another person who considered themselves a progressive, uh, a Talikian. Uh, I studied under uh, atheists, people who took an atheistic approach to these questions. And, uh, you know, it's always funny to me that on the street, as it were, you, you encounter these folks who are skeptics and they automatically assume that you're an idiot and that you haven't looked into these things on your own and that you're incapable of intelligible thought 
on your own. And I simply want to say, what else do you want me to do? Uh, I, I've, I took a dive into the best that your understanding of the world has to offer. And I found that your problem is not that you're a skeptic. Your problem is that you're not skeptical enough. And so you can't see that everything you do, whether it's logic, science, morality, everything you do on a day-to-day -day basis, plus when we get into academic discussions, it's all premised upon this suppressed truth that you know that the God of the Bible exists. That's yeah. good. Amen, man. That's that's awesome. I love that. And that's that's why I love studying the, the problems of philosophy. And I think for the most part, um, there's a couple like qualia and stuff that's kind of tricky, but uh, these problems arise because you stepped off the, the Christian worldview. Exactly and you have to right. you have to tacitly presuppose the Christian worldview as you're walking down the street or as you're you know cracking your egg or as you're putting your toothpaste on your toothbrush. Yeah. You're you're tacitly presupposing what you explicitly deny in the classroom and when you're yelling at me for being a, a country bumpkin um, for believing in Christianity. Yeah. So we did get this comment here from uh, Balint. Hey, there he is. Hey, Keffy. Uh, <laughs> he said he's listening. So um, uh, he's awake. You also. Um, you, we can't. I don't. We can't address all these. Look, uh, Arise <laughs> Hampton says, "Doctor Bolt, what is the smallest seed?" Brian Forbes says he'd he'd also like Doctor Bolt to go on record as to what the smallest <laughs> seed is. Man, you're getting trolled real hard. Um, we got. Uh, uh, oh, this is uh, this is the crack, and this is this is someone from a, a, another podcast that I used I to know, be on. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, can we go? Uh, can we get for the record that turning your hair pink is not a sin as a man? Um, read my book is a logical argument. All right, this is this is devolving into um, this just, is uh, pure trollery. It's pure <laughs> trollery. We did get one more question from Lucas Giolis again. What are pastors doing wrong when it comes to addressing science or not addressing science? Okay, I'm I'm going to answer this one because we have to wrap up. Yes. Uh, read this book. Yeah. Uh, read Chris Bolt's book. It, give this to your pastor. And, um, and this is a great starting point. I would also say, um, oh man, the, that other book by Dan Ray, I had Dan Ray on to talk about his book, uh, Dan Ray and Paul Gould. Um, they co-edited a book called it's, it's how the cosmos, heavens, right? Something, something about the cosmos. It's, it's, it's like, uh, yeah, man. Now that you should know this dude, you're failing. I know, I know I'm totally failing, but, uh, but anyway, look up Dan Ray and Paul Gould's book about how the heavens declare the glory of God. Amazing, amazing book. Um, but uh, but there are books out there that you can give to your pastor. And I, whether your pastor is going to take that and, and run with it, that's a whole other story. But um, that's where prayer comes in and uh, a gentle, respectful encouragement. And you know what? Maybe it's up to you or someone else who's like-minded to start a ministry, uh, an apologetics science-based um, ministry. Just make sure that it's presuppositional, Lucas, because uh, we want to be thoroughly biblical. Um, Lucas is is uh, he's not going to like that I said that, but um, but uh, real real quick, Chris, where can folks other than buying this book, which we recommend everybody does, where can they interact with your thinking? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at CL Bolt but that gets a little bit scary. You can look at some of the things I wrote in my cage stage days at Choosing Hats. Uh, there are links to archives there, recommended reading lists. There are, and it's just, it's not just me at that site writing either. 
Um, there are debates out there as well. Uh, some people have put some of those debates on YouTube, I believe. Um, and then, uh, of course, there's this book here and hopefully some more books in the future. Also, make sure to check out uh, my interview with uh, Eli Ayala and check out the other things he's doing. He's doing a great job. And these guys here, uh, likewise, are doing some really good stuff. And the mustard seed is not the smallest seed of all in the entire world, but Jesus <laughs> was accommodating things to his audience there who understood a mustard seed and not the seed that was in a completely different part of the world that they Amen. had never experienced. <laughs> Amen. All right. Well, Chris, thank you so much. Just want to encourage everyone watching or listening. Um, if you are listening on the podcast, please give us an honest five-star rating and review. Um, if you're wondering, well, what is the name of this podcast? Is it Sons of Thunder? Is it the Think Podcast? On Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or whatever your favorite app is, we are the Think Instant, the Think Podcast with Joel Sedicase, presented by the Think.Institute. We've got a different kind of episode every single day of the week. And on Thursdays, we do Thunder Thursdays with the Sons of Thunder. That's my brother Parker and me. We are in the middle of a series right now going through Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules for Life and Antidote to Chaos, which is um, a book that we recommend you get, read along with us, and then tune in next week as Parker and I tackle rule number three. You can follow the Think Institute on Twitter. It's at ThinkInst or on Facebook and Instagram at the Think Institute. Um, you can follow, get more amazing content from Parker simply by going to Parker Setacase, S-E-T-T-E-C-A-S-E dot -E -E com. And uh, I'm on all the socials as well. So uh, Dr. Bolt, Chris, thank you again for joining us. Um, Parker, uh, thank you for being my guest on my podcast. <laughs> yeah, great, great. <laughs> and, um, until next time, that's that's all we have for you. So until next time, we hope that this um, Bol bolted you uh, down. Bolted you down. Oh, yeah, that's good. I'll go with that. I'll go with that. <laughs> all right. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thanks. <laughs>